0: Welcome to the Peak Provider NDIS podcast. My name is Chris Fall, your host, and today we've got Brendan Grail on the line with me. Now, Brendan is the director and owner of, um, of a, a support coordination business um, called I Am In, um, and he's also a consultant um, in the NDIS. Now, Brendan's got a fascinating career history um, because he's uh, also been the CEO of companies such as My Plan Manager. Um, and he's got a, a deep and rich history in the industry broadly as well so today we're going to talk about conflicts of interest and how the NDIS is broken um, I think it's good to kind of talk about um, some of the should we say injustices that can exist in the industry and it's good to be um, strategic about that and also analytical um, so Brendan welcome to the podcast it's an absolute pleasure to have you on
1: thanks Chris pleasure to be involved
0: so, I mean, I guess for the benefit of people that, um, you know, want to go a little back in time towards your career history, um, you were the CEO of my plan manager back in 2019. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? And I guess what what is the future of plan management in your view?
1: Yeah, no problem. So, look, um, yeah, look, I, I entered um, the plan management space merely through a connection with the, the owner of the business um, who we had some, you know, common views around the sector and, and choice and control and the power of plan management and being able to give NDIS participants more choice. And look, honestly, it's a very exciting time. So when I joined my plan manager, I think only 22% of participants were plan managed, and but it was growing rapidly. And I think I, I thought that it might reach 35%, best case, and it, uh, I was... Uh, very wrong because it now sits at over 50%. And I think, look, honestly, it, it the main driver was purely that the NDIS registration process was too cumbersome, too slow, badly broken, um, inhibitive and prohibitive for, for businesses who wanted to be registered. And therefore people said, you know what, I don't want to just buy from one of the 10,000 registered providers. I want to buy from the world. Um, I like that choice, so I need to switch from being agency managed to plan managed. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, look it's um, it's a it was a very eye-opening um, mm-hmm. experience to be involved in. Um, not not so much the human I mean most of disability services you think of that very human side of um, support and providing a human with uh, the opportunity to have an amazing life, the plan management. Uh, on the other hand, was very much a transactional experience, and, and you know, paying people's bills and making sure their budgets were fine, and and doing the best on the number side of things. Um, so it was a very, you know, a numbers based game. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing, I think, with the future of plan management is there's, you know, there's dark clouds on the horizon. I think for particularly for the big plan managers because of a number of things. So one is the the CPOS system that the government or that the agency has invested significant resources in um, and certainly when they made the announcement a couple of years ago that the agency was investing in Salesforce mm-hmm. uh, and I think everyone's aware well at least in, in the, that software side of things it's the, the Rolls Royce of of CRMs and can do pretty much anything you want it's mm-hmm. very costly but it, it is very powerful and I think the fact that in the not-too-distant future, participants will be able to use their phone when they're going along to a you know physio appointment rather than saying at the end, please send the invoice to my plan manager, being able to just swipe the phone and, uh, and it's paid. Um, that power will give a lot more of that ability to manage finances, procure and pay in the, in the hands of the participant and wipe out the middleman or the intermediary, so to speak. That's
0: interesting. I mean, just to kind of pick your brain a bit on that, because it's it, the, the trend has been quite fascinating, isn't it? So back in 2019, relatively small portion of plan managed, as you say, now more than 58 is uh, more than 50%. If I remember correctly, I think, from one of the recent quarterly reports, it's around 58%. If I, if I remember correctly, of plan managed. Yeah, in it's, the well of 50. it's huge, yeah. right? You know, so the, the number of agency managed uh, participants has had a slower but gradual decline and sits more like, yes. say, 12% of the market. The self-managed people have been a relatively consistent chunk. It's like roughly about 30% ish. And, and I find yep. that interesting psychologically because um, I'm a father of, um, of an NDIS participant. My son is, um, it has a plan. Um, and because I'm a certain personality type where I want to kind of have that control and choose the provider and all that stuff, I'm probably a perfect, um, should we say avatar fit for the type of person that wants to be self-managed. Um, so yes. my my opinion, but I want to hear yours as well. Is that the self managed chunk of the market? I think that that's psychologically driven, um, and I think that's going to be the personality type that tends to stay relatively consistent. Would you, Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And look, you know, I think everyone agrees that self management is the ultimate expression of choice and control. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is because the NDIs. Is broken and has lots of problems and the system is way too complicated um i mean i still have never met an ndis expert there's no one that understands the system end to end um and look i think you know the government obviously moved under martin hoffman's leadership to and with the legislation change to sort of to basically move plan management under the the heading of self-management. It's a type of self-management, mm. and if I'm cynical, I would say that that's a precursor to um, applying the same kind of risk assessment over people who want to be plan managed. About can they, can a vulnerable um, consumer mm. be safe in making decisions to purchase from anywhere? Right, um, especially when, for example, people are doing things like purchasing support, 24-7 support from their next-door neighbour um, because they're a trusted person. They're quite isolated. The next-door neighbour is a friendly person. They found out they had a So, hmm. um, look, I'm getting off track a little bit. No, I get the- where you're
0: going because this is this will be a segue in a minute to the conflict of interest conversation. I get that. Yeah. that that's the, the Achilles heel that can be open to abuse. But on, on hmm. the future thing, just for a moment, it's interesting because um, I, I think that the self-managed mentality and capability as well... Will will generally always be, you know, slimmer. In that example where you said of like, you know, pulling out the phone, et cetera, and, and paying the thing, that kind of presu- that is almost like a self-managed person, though, isn't it? It presumes capacity. Whereas, you know, in contrast to that, you know, it works in my mind for the for the $193.99 physio session or PT session or OT yep. session, et cetera. But like that's yep. a transactional go to the clinic and do the one-off, one hour thing. Whereas yep. if you go to say SIL depending on someone's plan, every fortnight, it could be a $10,000 invoice. So it's like, it, it, yep. it's much bigger. So I think that, you know, yep. um, it's going to be interesting. Um, so are, are you, are you insinuating that because of the, the, the IT and the strategic shifts at the government level, are you saying that plan management might have a bit of a decline? Is that what you're kind of insinuating? Yes. Interesting. I I think it it
1: may do. And so things, I mean, the NDIA, 12 months ago when they published the document that accompanied the price guide, Mm -hmm. um, and once again, this was under the uh, just, I suppose, the one qualifying point in what I'm saying is that Martin Hoffman, the price CEO, had a very clear view around plan management, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, which came out in that commentary document because there were about a half a dozen references to plan management that were quite... Negative. Um, It compared the cost of, uh, you know, the cost of that style of payment Mm. as being many times the multiple of equivalent other payment systems in other, Mm. you know, Mm. sectors. um, That fraud was more likely, which I don't actually accept that. I think that. the best plan managers have amazing fraud detection yes. algorithms and systems, which the government currently, well, didn't have when I was at my plan manager. But with the power of Salesforce and the benefit of hindsight, and with nine and a half years of very, very rich longitudinal data, it's mm-hmm. actually not that hard to work out what can lead to a fraudulent or, or you know questionable transaction. So right. So look, I suppose that I'm I'm just guessing that the evolution of technology, the yes. massive, you know, investment in Salesforce, that deep da- data that, you know, the big plan managers, yes, they have data for perhaps tens of thousands of participants, but NDIS has it for half a million. They know exactly what people have been buying and when and how much they've paid, et cetera. Right. I think that the yeah, the future is is interesting. The other final point I'll make about plan management is that I think there's a very real chance that the government may require Mm. a person with their um, bucket of money to make a choice. Do they want to pay $1,500 out of that bucket for plan management Mm. or have an extra 20 hours of support work in a year? Uh, Currently, it's a free kick, um, which arguably is a bit of a flawed approach to say, Mm. if you want to be plan managed, then the taxpayer is happy to just... Yeah, pay that extra. You know, the equivalent of mm. hundreds of millions of dollars of years, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars per year to have um, plan managers do that function.
0: I mean, listening to your points, it, I completely agree. Actually, because it's my analogy would be the blockchain uh, evolution, right? So yeah. um, I believe there was a a tweet from it was some some Silicon Valley guy, and it was like, "Hey, I just moved a hundred million dollars, and it cost me." Fifty dollars to do on the blockchain right so the point is is that you know back in the day it used to be quite expensive to like do a bitcoin move from wallet to wallet and all this stuff um i this is a random share but it's relevant i moved some money around myself personally with bitcoin the other day and it cost me two dollars seventeen to do a transaction so it cost me basically nothing relative to to, you know to the amount and all that stuff that analogy is a perfect example because um, decentralized finance, blockchain, all of that kind of tech allows for mm-hmm. instant payments. So like an example yep. would be the banking system three years ago used to be radically behind and you would always wait three days for your, your Aussie dollars to come through from bank to bank. No longer the case. Yep. You've got things like, what is it, Osco, I think, with Westpac and other ones that's like, that's boom, right. instant. So they're catching yep. up from a banking system yep. point of view to do instant payments. So I think, I think blockchain is probably going to be one of the many examples of technology that you write could well put plan management at risk because there's no need. Because when you think about the business model of plan management, and I'm, I'm not preaching to the choir here because you did what you did, but like it's all about scale and tech and strategy, isn't it? Having an efficient absolutely. system, ticketing, yep. you know, just yep. making sure it flows through easily so that you so that you can yep. manage your margins because it a, it's a volume game, isn't it?
1: Yep, absolutely. And, and you know what? The, the protection of the type you um, spoke about just before in terms of, how you you can understand that a, a payment to a therapist is fine, but in SIL, you know these massive payments on a fortnightly basis. Mm. But there may very well be a different uh, a different person or a system that can actually trigger a a mm-hmm. signal that mm-hmm. hey, you know Mary Smith, who normally pays seven and a half thousand dollars per fortnight to her SIL provider, is suddenly being invoiced eighteen thousand. Red flag. That send it off to. LAC case manager support coordinator. Like there's there's going to be new in my view some newly uh, branded mm. roles that mm. have a, a combination of what is currently done by plan managers, support coordinators, LACs, advocates. I I think they need to scrap that old terminology because they've
0: mm. stuffed
1: it up so badly. Um, and look, having one of my um the parts of my um, experience was in western australia where i got to see firsthand how well lac's in the western australian model added value to families um totally the opposite to the way that you know the agency and when i was worked at the agency for a short period 7 years ago they went to wa to look at the lac model and said that's fabulous we'll have we'll have that but they didn't take that Um, In fact, it's, it doesn't resemble in any way, shape or form an LAC, the 27 LAC contractors in Australia are not doing anything like what that really family centric, um, individualized case management value add function that was done in Mm -hmm. WA. So what's to say that um, yeah as part of the review they go, you know what let's actually return to what was meant to be done um, and what we know worked in WA scrap the old LA system LAC system we'll call them something different and one of their roles will be to support families who are, are judged as not being financially literate for what it, you know, for whatever reason, whether that's people self-notifying or, or however, but to have an extra extra check. I don't know that you need a plan manager for $1,500 a year to, to do
0: that. It's humbling. I think you're right. And then even the LAC thing, you know, um, let me do a brief technological analogy again. Um, mm. You've got, have you heard of, I'm assuming you've heard of ChatGPT and all the AI models, et cetera. Yeah. You know, that's an yeah. example where um, I saw a terrifying video of, you know, those robot dogs that they have now, they can go around and you've got Boston Dynamics yeah. and all the stuff like that they do. Um, someone yeah. just integrated ChatGPT with the dog that walks around. Um, that's the robot dog, and you can mm-hmm. ask it questions and converse with it, and it talks to you and like yeah. wags its tail and nods yes and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the reason again I'm going down that road is that I can actually imagine, terrifying as this is, some people might not agree with this, but I can imagine a world where you actually have a decent AI system. That can genuinely interact, whether it be on the phone or written, et cetera, in a conversational manner that more than adequately fulfills the LEC function. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And in fact, you know, one of the the genuine innovators within the agency when I was there, Marie Johnson, who was the head of technology, gave birth to Nadia, um mm. Kate Blanchett voiced avatar that would have done exactly that, but yeah, it. Wasn't embraced because it was too contemporary, um, and and quite honestly, the variability in the advice that you get across the twenty seven different LAC contractors mm-hmm. is horrific. Um, and a computer will never make that mistake because it's reading from a you know an encyclopedia or a, a bounded conversation. So that virtual human or the avatar or however you deliver it is actually never wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but it, it, um, it, 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 it can be C's... a scary
0: but also an exciting world, right? Is, is, so I mean, I suppose, exactly, let's, yeah. let's kind of segue into some of the more human behavior things and talk about mm. the conflicts of interest, right? So, um, yep. as well as plan manager, I know that you you know you work at IAM in, um, but then you're also an independent consultant too. Um, mm. So you, you've seen you know a lot of things in the industry. You've interacted with the providers. You, you know the kind of macro perspective of what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. What kinds of specific conflicts of interest um, over your time do you observe within the NDIS? Yeah. Look, the biggest one, and look, yes, I'm biased because I'm a a
1: support coordinator who is unconflicted and we don't do anything else. um, And we have no financial, uh, we we get no financial gain by recommending any provider registered or unregistered. We purely um, look at, quality, you know, a history of service provision systems, individuals involved in a business, and will recommend to a family, businesses based on that, you know, quality. Unfortunately, 93% of our counterparts are registered support coordinators, 93% are conflicted. So they also sell stuff. Um, And no, you know, fake screen of, um, you know, like the conflict of interest policy or rubbish that, that, is is used and I, look, I, I get a bit emotional about this because I've seen you know how badly that and how unethical it is to believe that a a written policy in an organisation can can wash away um, a, a conflicted situation. At the start of NDIS, there was a, a very clear determination there would be um, a supply and demand side of a marketplace with intermediaries that sat right in the middle with two types of intermediaries, a financial intermediary being the plan manager and, a and service intermediaries. And now they split into two different types, LACs and support coordinators, LACs aren't allowed to also sell services, at least not in the same market where they're, you know, doing LAC contracted services. Why were support coordinators allowed to? So it was, it's one of the biggest, mistakes I think mm. that the agency made um, and it was allowed to continue it's it's out of control as I say you know there's thousands of conflicted providers um, what, what it means in essence is that a person who is isn't an immature consumer mm. uh, and when I say a, 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 what I've been mean by that is this the NDIS marketplace is still quite new. Yes, we're nine and a half years into it, but the evolution of technology and particularly assistive technology and how a robot actually may be a viable alternate to a human to provide personal care supports, this is all brand new evolving stuff. Um, so there's, yeah, look, um, the I could go on for ages here, but I think I'll, I'll come back to the point that um, if you're helping a, a consumer to understand all this new evolving stuff and to put forward some options um, that they might like to consider for purchasing with their dollars, you can't also be selling um, those services. Uh, it's it's morally wrong in my view. Um, I think that's definitely one of the changes that will, will occur um, leading out of, uh, out of the NDIS review, but other changes are things like Uh, the big providers who are also landlords, you you cannot have the most vulnerable, highest needs people with disability living in congregate care situations in this situation where they can't sack their provider because they're not happy with what's the provider's doing because it would mean they're homeless because the provider's also the landlord. It's just, it's blatantly wrong. Um, And this is perhaps my biggest disappointment with, the big not-for-profits in the sector not being able to um, realise that they have perversely um, worked against genuine inclusion of the type espoused in the United Nations Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disability. Mm-hmm. And look, once again, I could speak forever on this topic. I've tried to reach out to some board members of some of those top 10 providers to have a mm-hmm. discussion around mm-hmm. this conflict and the, mm-hmm. the power that... Um, is in place that they have now have that they never should have had and should unwind as quickly as possible. Mm. They don't want to, the ones I've reached out don't want to engage in a discussion around that.
0: It's challenging, isn't it? Because once the, once the beast has grown, um, it's hard to tame the beast and also to take the beast out of the market. Um, So if you've got a huge business that exists, then you're going to get pushback. Right. It doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. Because I mean, like when I'm, you know, in my experience, I've been the director of, you know, various providers, et cetera. So I've seen the 360 of it um, in what I do. Um, And whenever we, you know, a lot of providers want to create a relationship with a support coordinator, right? And then sometimes the sales team or the intake team of, of Provider A can be a bit timid going like, oh God, they, they don't just do support coordination. They also do, you know, SIL or personal care or community access. Mm. You go, oh, I don't know if I should call them. And, and we've had a mixed experience whenever we've gone outbound and tried to engage. And, and you'll find one of two things. It'll either be, some of the more ethical providers actually have a proper Chinese wall. Um, that's like a, I don't know if that's politically correct anymore, but I don't really care. Um, like in my consulting <laughs> days, you call it a Chinese wall, right? And it was properly, <laughs> I used to work in IT and you say, if there's a conflict of interest, you have two consulting teams, Chinese wall between the two, not allowed to communicate, not allowed to share details. And and would put systems yep. in place to, to ensure that that, you know, yep. stayed, stayed the case. And yep. um, so some of the bigger providers would say, yep, yeah, we, we, openly do not recommend our own services um and and you know therefore we're willing to have a conversation with you i i, I thought that was the right thing to do i think i like that angle i like that approach um as a policy but but unfortunately there's no you know there's no requirement from the practice standards point of view to do so so that will be the thin slither of the market that is the you know the 10 percent. but unfortunately the 90 percent, they have the ability just to do anything don't they so um yeah. Yeah. Look, if- I, I, I I suppose
1: that my perspective on that that is that that's an inappropriate um, approach to believe that by having that wall and having a strict policy. The bottom line is, once someone's employed by an organization, they're going to be more privy to every all the information that's coming at them yep. is from that organization. Yes. Um, they're going to feel as though, you know, perhaps that's one of the options they need to put. It's just, it, it just needs to be separated. Yes. Um, now, as to whether the role of a support coordinator changes, and I should add, by the way, that um, just to um, to show that I'm, I'm open-minded about the future of support coordination, there is a risk that support coordination will cease, cease to exist. So the NDIS okay. review... And certainly some of the comments Bill Shorten has made lead me to believe that he doesn't value um, the service intermediation that support coordinators are delivering. Hmm. Um, now, I'm not sure to what degree the LAC's service intermediation and the support coordination service intermediation are being confused or um, not uh separately identified in terms of mm. what they they they're meant to be doing what they are doing what outcomes are being delivered or not delivered but yeah there's there's the intermediation space as a whole, has been ver- so badly managed that it's at risk of being scrapped and something different happening. Oh gosh,
0: it would be a shame in many ways because, like the, the 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 great support coordinators, those people are also the best advocates, aren't they? So, say if someone's in hospital, they need to you know pull together those those allied health reports or do a change of circumstances. Like it's going to be the support coordinator that's best place to to be that formal advocate because you need to be an expert, don't you, in the whole framework of the NDIS to To basically effectively advocate you can you can be an independent advocate but you don't know the ndis um so i think it would be even though these conflicts of interest exist and we you know i would agree we need to try and remove those um over time um i think it would be a shame if we lost support coordinators look it's you're right but there's also a degree
1: of you know i don't know what the percentage is there's a lot of bad support that's true that's crappy lacs are crap there's crap be everything let's be honest yeah. um so you know if if we allow that critical service intermediation role to be done by you know mm. cowboys um yeah. uh then and they don't understand what all the various other federal government systems are the state government systems what you know mainstream and community supports are available and how important they are in a person's mm. life if they don't have that knowledge and, and let's face it there's no Training standard or accreditation for service intermediation, like that, there, there must be, there has to be. That's actually and- a really
0: good point. Yeah, I mean, it's just sorry to interrupt. We'd like to pick up on that. I think we should we should yeah. highlight that, right? Because um, my mm. background's also in the vet sector. So I I used to do projects yep. with RTOs and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And I'd say that I, I, I think, I'd hazard a guess. Yeah, actually, you know what? I'll say this. I think the NDIS could um, be a really good We've already got certificate three and in individual support, cert four and disability. Mm. Um, I would think that there should be, you know, some, some some additional qualifications for this intermediary role, so that you can only do, for example, support coordination if you've got a cert four in this or that. You know, what, what do you think about that? Like, could we could we help address the quality issue through the vet sector? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you've got to look to what what has worked
1: elsewhere in equivalent sectors, and if it means that I, as a, you know, and and my Rob, just but to be clear, I do support coordination for some families. Mm -hmm. I would be happy to be put through that process, even though there'd be some stuff that I probably already know. But if it meant that all service intermediaries are going to meet that minimum standard, of course, that's a good thing. Uh,
0: Mm. Mm. Okay, so the first conflict of interest that we're identifying here is simply you've got one company does support coordination and also does services has a conflict of interest to recommend itself right so that's that's one um i suppose also you've got um you know what about the the subsidiary angle right so if you think about like structural um ownership um it would be possible for you know company a to do its services raise capital et cetera and have a subsidiary give birth to a support coordination company and they just refer to themselves. Like, you know, would, would you agree that rules need to be put in place in the future so that you don't allow that direct ownership and you actually need to track uh, you know, the, the, yep. where the money's coming from? I
1: think there are particular... Yeah, there's only a small number of areas that, in my view, involve conflict. And I should point out, I, I don't, I'm one of the people who don't believe that plan management and support coordination, uh, if you do both... I don't actually see that as a conflict, interestingly enough. But because they both sit in the middle, they're both an intermediation role. Yes. Um, As long as a plan manager who is a support coordinator and vice versa Mm. doesn't doesn't offer any other services, I I don't actually see an issue with that. So organisations like plan partners who do both support coordination and plan management, uh, it's a a completely different model to my plan manager who only do plan management. But then I, I would say that many of the my plan manager the the good good stuff there will be doing free support coordination because people once they develop a relationship and trust with a plan manager will ask the kinds of questions and expect the kind of answers that a good support coordinator would deliver so yep look i don't see an issue there it's more around but coming back to your question yeah ownership structures so where the private sector is delivering to you know vulnerable consumers which is mm-hmm. we need to keep coming back to you know it's we're never going to have a truly open unregulated market because of the horrific neglect and abuse that we're reading about in the um the interim reports from the royal commission and that's going to come out like a you know, a tsunami when the report lands in September and everyone will go, oh, that's why we can't allow conflict of interest um, and and, uh, conflicted providers. So the the key things for me are SDA. If you do SDA, you don't do anything else. If you're a support coordinator or plan manager, you don't do anything else. Um, If you're a, a, a director or owner of a private business, Potentially, you should not be allowed to also be the shareholder of a, you know, one of those jumping over those lines. Mm-hmm. However, um, I'm still undecided whether that's a no-no or whether a a public statement, kind of like the, cig- the sticker on the back of a cigarette packet that at least makes it absolutely known to consumers that this business has an interest in this as well, you know? Yes. Yeah. So... I- I think there's lots to be learned from the financial services royal commission around, um, you know, being absolutely transparent about what mm. those relationships are. In my mind, it's even more critical though, because as I said, financial services, twenty million consume, uh, twenty five million Australians are potentially consuming that NDIS, mm. half a million vulnerable, many many vulnerable
0: um, yeah. who need yeah. support. Exactly. Um, one, one other conflict of interest that's kind of always interested me a little bit is because um, I've, I've worked as a director of a SIL company, for example. So yep. I know for a fact that it's very common that the SIL provider is different from the community participation provider that goes out you know, to do community access. Um, yep. From what I can tell, I'm interested to hear just checking in your view on this. Yep. My understanding is that legislatively, you practice standards wise, etc., it is actually possible for a provider to bo- to do both the SIL and the community participation. It's just, it's quite common that they're separate. Is, would, is that your perspective too, that you, it's possible to do both? Um, I, I honestly, my,
1: my honest view on that is that all SIL providers should be doing both. Uh, this is going to sound like an unusual response. Mainly I like because... it. I, I'm willing
0: to have that conversation. I, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I Tell me, I'm interested, because I, I, I think I, I think I agree with you okay cuz but my
1: perspective is that the the big not for profits who are the the most um uh they the the most constrictive um power in the lives of of group home residents in relation to being in some cases the landlord the service provider the therapist the employer um everything um and and a person who's in a group home setting, um, unfortunately, the way that the SIL funding works and the quoting system and because rostering is a nightmare for large workforces, uh, unfor- and, and I should say mostly this is because the big not-for-profits are, are really poor at using software in a powerful way. So, And by that I mean you've got thousands of people in your workforce do you know exactly what their preferences are? And I'm just not, I'm not talking about um, the obvious stuff, but just nuanced things like what actually makes that person want to get out of bed and go and work for that big not-for-profit every day. Respect those preferences that the, the workforce has, understand deeply the preferences of the consumers and and use technology to to make sure there are never mismatches or a risk of someone turning up to a person's house and being like, who are you? And you Oh, you're going to wipe my bum today. Okay, yes. well, nice to meet you. Yes. Um, so, look, I think um, for, for those reasons, a lot of the big not-for-profits actually don't do a lot of, you know, actually encouraging the resident to actually leave the house in the morning yep. and yep. do stuff in the big wide world and to take yep. risks. Um, look, it's a whole other separate subject—the dignity of risk and how that is so often suppressed um, by yes. the big not-for-profits. But um, so I, I would, I would actually say that people's lives, those people who are in congregate living situations and having up to forty or fifty strange people coming in and out of their home in any given week, mm. may actually have a a better life if as part of their contract for accommodation supports, that provider actually must engage them in community. Yep. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's the, a whole principle of the insurance scheme and the, what taxpayers would expect is that we don't just shovel barrow loads of cash to make a person so dependent and so secure in a home that Will need to pay that three hundred and fifty thousand dollars average still funding for the rest of their life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What if some of those people in those group homes, if given the opportunity and encouragement mm-hmm. to actually go and, you know, be included in society, access free things in society, be involved in regular things, that they actually may not one want to live in a need to live in a group home anymore, may actually get a job, may actually end up not even needing NDIS. Look, there's. there's a whole range on that sort of continuum but mm. yeah my, the whole principle i think of ndis the invest early to save later mm. has unfortunately been completely undermined by some of the the market forces perverse market forces that have been introduced and the yeah. conflicts that have been allowed to occur
0: i i agree completely i mean there's there's, there's two other reasons i think it's um useful um to have the SIL provider you know being also the community participation person even if someone doesn't have capacity building formally in their budget, getting out to the community inherently, from a well-being point of view, has an element of capacity building. Um, so Definitely. you know you're innate, you, you are empowering someone uh, to have a better life, well-being wise. You know, literally use your body in whatever way you can. Being you know, be in nature, be in community, express yep. your interests, your passions, your goals. Totally. That, that's what it's yep. all about, right? And um, yep. and the, back in the UK, I used to be a carer. Um, so we call it a carer in the UK. It's a support worker. Um, yep. And I was shocked um, every time I go around to the equivalent of a sill house. Most of the staff were just there, you know, sitting on the couch, slouched back, having a cup of tea, watching the you know watching Netflix. Um, and I was like, what? killing
1: time. It's killing a time. Big of waste a, of taxpayers' money.
0: Waste taxpayers' yeah. money. And the, and the, the laundry wasn't done. You know, sometimes there was abuse in terms of you know people not being careful for properly and it was shocking. Um so I think that you know the the whole point about the community stuff is that we need to kind of like snap I mean first of all providers shouldn't be doing that but if you if if, if part of your role is to get out it kind of snaps them into action to say like get off your ass um, and get out to the to the community and do your thing. Um so I think yep. it could be a, a very positive thing for people with disability but also you know kind of snapping the industry into shape but um another pragmatic point is that When I was running a SIL company, it was frustrating for us as the SIL provider that we didn't have any kilometres in our budget. It was the community participation company that did because that was part of the CP budget. So that meant that, you know, even though we had great intentions uh, to go and do the cool thing that was genuinely the person's passion, like go to the soccer mate, go to the rugby, you know, whatever it else was, we didn't have the mechanism to to reimburse the 100 kilometres that it would take to do so. Um, so sometimes we'd eat that out of our own margin um, which is great um, but again that's just one small example about the logistics of like you're not really truly empowering the person to go and do what they do because you're restricting the cp stuff to monday to friday 9 a.m to 2 p.m it's too robotic you need to be able to go in like just you know what i mean like seven days a week what do you actually want yep. to do and here's some budget to support yep. that
1: Yep. And I might say, too, that just to to balance this discussion, because mm. you just reminded me that there is a risk that people listening to the podcast might say, well, brenda's just and, and Chris are now just making, you know, imposing their values or making judgments or forcing their decisions on and assuming that people with disability can't decide for themselves. But I was pleased to see that yesterday in the supported decision-making policy that NDIA launched, I think it was yesterday, earlier this week anyway, mm-hmm. acquiescence is actually mentioned. Um, okay. And on, on page 21, I think it was. Um, and so the, the big not-for-profits and the board members who say, but we've asked our residents, are they happy with our service? And they say, yes. Right. And we've asked them, would they like to live somewhere else? And they say, "Say no, or... or and look, when you, it's honestly frustrating to me that um, a person, particularly, and I'm talking here about people with cognitive impairments yep. who can quite easily say yes or no and be led towards an answer. But if they're not actually um, given the opportunity, number one, to actually understand what other options may be. Now, whether that's, I know some really contemporary providers use virtual reality headsets to actually show people what experiences outside of a, you know, uh, their their current life might look like and, yep. and encourage them to actually indicate whether it's with a thumbs up or a, a press of a button. I'd like to try some of that. Um, but using, you know, visual tools and other techniques to actually identify gent- deeply what would a person like more of in their life that they're not currently currently getting. So I think this kind of low expectations and the, and the the being the or, or the the tendency for a group home provider to just not want to rock the boat. Let's because because honestly, changing rosters like that that's going to cause a headache. Don't change my rosters. You know, it, it's it can be very simple stuff that might prevent mm. that exploration and, and therefore you know, you end up then with tens of thousands of Australians having potentially a very unfulfilled, non-included, you know, horribly sheltered life mm. when other options may have actually worked better. So, look, uh, I think, yeah, so your question uh, initially, I don't see it as a conflict at all for a civil provider to do um, things out in the community. Anything that's not intermediation, mm. um, I think, you know, offer it. Having said that, when I'm doing consulting with providers, I encourage them to also, well, to specialise where possible, to pick a mm. lane, mm. something that actually you have deep knowledge and passion about, um, and and do that really well. And don't be encouraged to then just add on a whole bunch of other things, Yes, which yes. unfortunately has been what most medium to large providers, even smaller providers, Look at their growth and the graphs, and there are too many boards who say we just want that line to keep ticking, ticking upwards. There needs to be more consumers buying more products, higher margin, um, instead of focusing more on quality. Yeah. How many people actually have we met met our their objectives with, and we've off boarded. Um, I, I don't hear offboarding right. being spoken about. It's all about client acquisition. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather hear about how many clients have they successfully built the capacity of yep. to to no longer need our service. Um, that's another subject. I, I
0: I I agree that would be that is that that is the ideal, and I think I think we can and should get there. You know, in terms of it, over time, with whether it be KPIs, etc. I mean, look, without a doubt, clearly you and I have a passion, and and, and yes, there's passion and values coming across in this conversation, but. Mm-hmm. But there's also the flip side of that is also the principles of the conflict of interest, right? So in, in us talking about this SIL and CP example, um, you know, one, one other brief mention, having worked for a variety of providers and seen lots of things happen, another common thing, which is um, a bit dog-eat-dog, dog, is that you can have between, you know, the SIL provider and the separate community provider, you can have basically sometimes the community participation provider basically trying to steal the SIL participant, right? And so the, and so, what you've got is really, it's really sad and it's quite unethical, is that you might have someone that um, does have, you know, cognitive issues or capacity building, uh, sort of capacity, decision-making capacity issues. Um, and even if they've got a nominee, you've got you've got all this stuff going on where you can have um, a variety of actors trying to influence someone that's vulnerable, to say like they're rubbish, they're rubbish. Come across to us, you know, and it's really nasty because um not only is it disruptive from a business point of view, um it's um yeah it's kind of um it's manipulating someone. So I think of course the the, the principles of the NDIS are fantastic, the code of conduct is fantastic. Of course, it's about choice and control. Um, but but what I'm saying is that it's kind of like you know what it's like. It's like mum and dad that got divorced and they're fighting. And, 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 the, and the poor family member is in the middle. And, and, and I'm not, this is not, sorry, my analogy is poor there because I'm not trying to talk about people with disability being the child. That's not my intention here. But it's an analogy to say that when you've got two people fighting over another person, that poor person in the middle is basically being manipulated because there's, there's literally an economic conflict of interest to try and grab the market and steal it from one another.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and look, its it, a whole separate subject is the, the two big C words, and, and there's lots of one and there's not much of the other. Competition um, is rampant, um, and it unf- it's one of the perverse outcomes of NDIS, that, right. that some of the flaws in the system have created, you know, competition that actually adversely impacts people's lives. Mm. The, the C that we want to see more of is collaboration and cooperation, where... Yes. Um, Yeah, providers can actually stand alongside one another, um, Mm -hmm. complementary providers, or even ones who are doing exactly the same as you but have something different to offer and respect that um, if a group of providers has met a minimum standard of quality, that everyone has a role to play in the consumer or whoever is supporting their decision-making um, or even in, you know, the case of someone with a, a public guardian who is making all the decisions on behalf of that person, that it, it there's no pressure. And I, I think some of the conflicts that we're talking about, if they're removed mm. um, and some of the other um, perversions that have been allowed to run ramp, rampant under the NDIS are fixed, that, yeah, that's not going to be as much of an issue. Is yeah. my hope, and, and yeah. I, I actually genuinely believe that Bruce Bonahady and the people on the NDOS review team actually understand what those perversions are that have been created with the NDOS market, and I think they know that they must be removed. The question will be, how do they convey or articulate a solution, an alternate solution to the minister that is politically? palatable and is uh, but also to consumers a- yes. and look we don't have time to get into this but the the big um what the, or the, the 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 big elephant in the room for me with the NDIS review is without a doubt a large number of NDIS participants are going to be removed from NDIS they're going to drop down from tier three to right. tier to tier two um and already we're getting signals and messaging that I believe has potentially come from, you know, political areas to uh, the media to say that if one in 10 boys age five to seven are NDIS participants, does that mean that given the, the history of NDIS that those same 10% of boys when they're teenagers and men are going to be NDIS participants? It, it right. doesn't make sense. Right. Um, so, so it's not passing the pub test. It's setting the scene, I believe, for removing... A large number of swathes of NDIS participants who don't have what Bill Shorten calls severe and profound disability, those people will drop from from the tier three funded packages into a tier two, um, because as Seinfeld says, you know something's got to give. The, the 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 demand for services is growing, um, the people being onboarded, you know people being onboarded at NDIS is growing. Tier two has has clearly been stated; it needs a big amount of funding. But on the other hand, we've got the government saying, and even the um, IMF has bought into it recently interesting, saying Australia is paying too much for its disability, you know, support scheme. Um, the pressure that the government is under to bring that pot yeah. down in size, hmm. is uh, yeah, there's going to be some losers out of the right.
0: NDIS review. Uh, That's interesting. That's really interesting. So just a couple of wrap-up questions. Um, yep. As a business, you know, I am in your support coordination business. How do you, mm. I, I, I think I know parts of the answers. I, I, how do you avoid conflict of interest? What do you put in place to, you know, mm. to say you're an unconflicted business?
1: Um, look, it's it's purely things like none of the directors um, of the business actually have any ownership whatsoever in anything on the service, in service land. All we are is a uh, support coordinators, Um we we encourage every um, inquire every person who comes to us to inquire about um what we can offer we encourage every single person to go to two other independent support coordinators to speak with them before they make a decision um, that to me is important um to demonstrate because there I've seen there's too easily when a vulnerable person meets a friendly person who they can they feel like they can trust they'll say okay I'm, I'm happy for you to do it um I believe while the market is still immature, we encourage people to go away, talk to some other people, Mm -hmm. um, have, you know, get that choice before you make a decision. Um, Yeah. We, we, there's no kickbacks or commissions and, you know, from time to time you do get quite, you know, um, switched on salespeople at providers trying to establish relationships. Um, But You know, essentially, we we just we go on what we we see and hear and understand to be high quality supports, Mm. Um, and we'll put forward at least three options where possible, all unconflicted providers. So, unless in a particular postcode or in a particular situation, the only option is a conflicted provider, we we wouldn't actually recommend that a, a consumer go to a conflicted provider. They're being led into a. A dangerous scenario in in my view so they're the kinds of things that we as a business um adhere to but i should say we're tiny you know we've got a hundred odd families we support um, it's the it, it's that there's there's a lot of other um controls i think also very simple things that that the big support coordinators or the big you know um providers could do
0: yeah okay no I love it i love it though i mean but, but again structurally you put in place you're living and breathing the stuff we've talked about today um and the final question um one of the uh one of the things about being in the support coordination game is that you get you know you get a certain budget right so if we talk about the mm-hmm. economics and the business side and balancing the quality um it can be challenging from a from a volume point of view if you you know if you've got say x number of people on your portfolio as a, as a support mm-hmm. coordinator um to kind of make sure that you are consuming the hours that you've got budget for right so um, those are obviously constraints that need to exist. But at uh, at your business that I am in, um, how do you balance the quality within those constraints that exist from a budget point of view?
1: Yeah. So we, we use uh, the software product we use actually assists us to identify where in a position, uh, where in a person's, you know, plan period whether it's six months 12 months 24 36 or beyond Mm -hmm. um how are they tracking and are they under or underutilized under or overutilized now for many um well for more than half of our clients as is the case for the market they're plan managed so hopefully they've got a plan manager providing the same mm. thing and particularly the the better plan managers with their apps will will give them a, a better view than we do about that because we're literally just using our software to track how people are going when we see people arrive the well it's not so much the behind but it's if they're heading at, you know if they're they've spent 40 weeks of funding and they're only 20 weeks into their plan then, you know, well, well before then we've had a discussion, but mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So technology is part of it. And I'm sure, you know, just listening yeah. to you today, I, I have every faith that your team's also very knowledgeable. So I think that if you've got the knowledge, then you can um, you can very competently navigate the, the various scenarios that people will be facing.
1: Yep. Yep. And, and look, I, I do actually have faith, even though the cynics would say the government has a very poor record with technology um, projects particularly, you know, the nature of this Salesforce one and the CPOS technology and the the risks that go with giving half a million people an app that has everything that, you know, it has their dollar figure, how much they spend, how much is left, the ability to buy stuff, you know, buy now kind of Mm -hmm. functionality, there's that could go horribly wrong. And, and I think most of the big plan managers would be counting on things going wrong, and therefore the, there'll always be a need for good quality plan management of the type yeah. that is currently in place. But, yeah, I, I think the yeah, yeah we'll protect, the, the money that's being spent on Salesforce and and most Salesforce projects, as you you may have heard, will end up costing multiples of the original budget. Oh, but yeah. they generally hit the mark, and there's a reason why a Salesforce product is at the top of the the Gartner quadrant, because it's, you know, um, so I'd be surprised if the government stuffed this one up. And and I can see that by late next year or or at the latest mid 2025, there is going to be way more powerful tools in the hands of a participant with Mm. appropriate controls built in and with appropriate oversight. Now, whether that's with a new role called a case manager or it's an LAC that's been rebranded, or a a friendly neighbour. You know, we must return to more of those freely given supports that unfortunately have been unwound. Um, one, another one of the first outcomes that we haven't spoken about, but social capital has been eroded.
0: Mm.
1: Neighbours, friends, extended family are less likely to actually give up sports now that they know that people have this massive bag of money. You go and buy it somewhere else. Why do I need to provide it anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, and I there's multiple examples, even in this state, of some fabulous free um stuff under the 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 banner of social role valorization that was was evolving strongly before NDIS come along. Mm-hmm. The graph was going like this, mm-hmm. and it's just gone the other
0: way. Um that's a a a, um, a chilling point, but very relevant, isn't it, about the social capital part of you. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Well, look, Brendan, um, I know that we're going to have a conversation in the near future. We've got plans no to uh, when the new price guy comes out to have a have a good chat about that, et cetera. But Brendan, yeah, well, well pick picked that. Yep. This has been fascinating. I, I, mate, thank you so much for coming on. And um, no very much uh, that's opened up my mind to to many things philosophically and strategically about the industry. Thanks for listening to me babble on, Chris. (laughs) No, not at all. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, once more, it's uh, Brendan Grail here. My name is Chris Hall. I'm the business owner of Peak Provider. And this is the Peak Provider NDIS podcast. Thanks for tuning in.